Hey, Equity Family, it's Alex. This is me coming with my disrupt, kind of destroyed voice. I hope this is actually okay. But listen, we ran out of time this week. We had a killer time. We did a live show that was packed. We had a blast. We met everybody. Pretty much everybody was there. It was, it was lovely, but we actually ran out of time. So we didn't get to cut a new episode for you today. So what we did was we took Teresa and we said, Teresa, go back in the archives, find something lovely that people should hear and may have missed the first time around. And we'll run that on Friday and I will talk on the top of it. So Here I am talking, and now we have an episode for you. This is Natasha and Becca talking about startups and I think layoffs. So sit back, enjoy, and Equity will be back sometime early next week as soon as we all have our gear plugged in and our heads back on our shoulders. Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and joining me is Rebecca Skutak, senior writer covering venture, capital and startups. It is so exciting to have you back on the show, Becca. No, excited to be back. Thanks for having me. I feel like everyone's heard enough of me this week, so I'm extra grateful for you. Marianne and Alex are out, but this is going to be fun because we're both kind of in a similar world, although we're on different desks, but generally in the world of venture. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, especially with some of the news this week, I'm definitely excited to dive in further. Yeah, exactly. Before we get into the news, I feel like equity listeners do not know you as well as obviously me or some of the other regular co-hosts. So I was thinking of putting you on the spot and giving you two options. Either tell us your coffee order, which is how I judge people and whether I'm going to be friends with them, or tell us a fun fact. Oh, coffee order would be hard because I actually don't drink coffee. Oh, no. Okay. Are you a tea person or nothing? Yeah, no, I really... I. Love a good like matcha lemonade or something kind of like that. Okay. Mixing the bitter and the sweet is definitely okay, we'll work my with sweet it. spot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good to know. The fun fact might be the matcha lemonade recipe that you're hiding from us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I had a good recipe to <laughs> promote on here, but I definitely don't. There's a really good matcha spot in SF called Stone Mill Matcha. Oh. And I don't know if you've been, but we'll do it when you come to Disrupt. I feel like I want to do like everything with everyone who doesn't live here because so much of TC is based near you and not me. <laughs> no, definitely. I would love to go when we're out there. Sweet. Okay, well, your taste buds are definitely noted, but let's jump into what we're talking about today. We're going to start with the FDA's decision to allow over-the-counter hearing loss technology and why that matters for startups. Then we're going to talk about Pomelo, which is all about international money transfer, super crowded sector. Then we're going to spend time on two themes. So first, we're going to look at how employee benefits startups are faring when employers are changing their mind about what to put money into, as well as how corporate venture plays a role. We'll end at looking at two U.S. geographies, the Midwest and South East and stay tuned because we're going to draw comparisons between both of them that you'll probably be surprised by. Reactions around the news item of the week. I've talked about it on Monday. I talked about it on Wednesday, but I had to get your take too, obviously, on Adam Newman's return to real estate, Andreessen Horowitz's biggest check ever written to date, going into his new company, Flow. I mean, what was your day one response? And I guess it's day four since it's happened. So maybe what's changed? Definitely. I was, like a lot of people, really shocked about seeing the news on Monday. Not necessarily shocked about the fact that Adam Newman was able to make a comeback. The writing was on the wall over the last year. He definitely was starting to get active. And I wasn't surprised that someone would come in and back him when he eventually got something going. Yeah. So I definitely, I think what my first reaction was, was just the size of the check. One, because I was quite frankly surprised that that's the largest check that Andreessen has (laughs) written so far because... 350 million per the New York Times, yeah. Right, because I was just thinking of some of their other bets at such like big valuations and stuff that actually sort of surprised me at first that that was the biggest check they've written. But I think what's kind of changed for me over the past few days is sort of like thinking about where it goes from here. 
So it's a billion dollar company. It hasn't launched yet. And going off of the last few years, venture firms could definitely make bets like this because they had a lot of conviction that someone would come in after them. Who cares if you write a check for a crazy valuation if the next person a year later is going to write for something higher? Right. That essentially de-risks what may not be a good bet to begin with. There was like a joke on Twitter a little bit of like these emerging fund managers saying, I'm just going to start backing controversial founders so Andreessen Horowitz can mark them up and I look smart, which is like a sad joke. But just to echo your point where it's like, huh, what a different world. No, it's so true though, because if you know someone's going to follow on, it just like totally changes the conversation of like what you can and can't back and by how much. So definitely now thinking, especially about the SoftBank news from a few weeks ago, they're sort of admitting that they really did mess up on the valuations last year and are sort of embarrassed by what happened from that. Thinking about if some of those big players may not be interested in coming on after, that makes this a very different deal. Like if this happened a year ago today, it would be like, wow, that's crazy, but someone will fund it in six months. Today, I'm less sure about that. And I'm kind of Curious about how that'll impact the startup in the future if it's not like a guarantee anymore to kind of follow on and around like that. It's such a good point. Like, and it's not one of those problem areas, real estate, where you can be like super capital lean. It does require a lot of money. A lot of money going into a real estate company in general makes sense. And I talked to a competitor about that where he was like, I think we'll see bigger VC rounds going into these hard and antiquated industries. But I agree. I feel like just based on like some of the reaction, I think there are a lot of positive takes on Adam Newman's return. So like we might see those people jump in. Yeah, it just does not seem as simple as like, if you're going to start that high, where do I go from there? And even if you agree with Adam Newman's return, um, you may not agree with the valuation, which is like the whole other level, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing too that this points out is, especially this year, as many VCs are doing sort of like the flight to comfortable and sort of going on a lot of safer bets. I know we'll talk a little bit about that later when we dive in sort of the regional themes, but Mm -hmm. this shows that Andreessen is like putting out the message there that you have a risky background, you're trying to do something ambitious, like they'll still write you a check. And while that can be good or bad, I think that is just worth noting on its own that it's like there are VCs like Andreessen are still willing to, okay, we'll take those potentially big risk, big reward. Totally. Seeing that amid a downturn versus 2021, just it's such a different story. And it's so many signals. We've talked about it a bunch on the site. So I'll I'll stop us here, but I'm glad to hear where you're at because I hadn't considered that follow-on funding aspect at all. But let's jump into something that you just wrote. It's coming out this morning and it's all about hearing aids and kind of an innovation in the space that's going to make them more accessible and, and startups in the space very happy. What's going on? Yeah, definitely. So on Monday, the FDA announced that hearing aids could now be sold over the counter, which is a big win for that industry because traditionally you had to have a prescription, which for some people, that'll still make the most sense going forward. But for a lot of it, it's stifled innovation. One of the people I spoke to described how there are five legacy players in the space and he described them as a cartel. He was like, you can't break into the space. Like they had a hand in everything. Like if you went to an audiologist, they probably had a contract with one of the five players. So you had no choice to begin with. And they're so expensive because of this like lack of competition. The average pair costs 4,500. And despite the clear like medical need for a lot of these people, it's not really covered by insurance for the most part. Yeah. This ruling essentially allows lots of new companies to come into the space. You can do sort of any price range, any sort of new tech can come in mm-hmm. and you can sell it. This will also probably make it easier for them to sell through the prescription round if they decide to go down that way. But you can sell stuff at, say, a CVS. And they're saying this could be huge, not only with innovation, but 
not having to go through the traditional prescription route, they're hoping will help bring down the stigma associated with wearing hearing aids, especially because we all probably incorrectly think of it as something that is mainly for like the elderly and people hearing loss associated with age. But one of the founders I spoke to is 30 years old. And that's what got him inspired to come into the space because he felt really weird about starting to wear hearing aids at 30 years old, but he needed them. And so kind of hoping to reduce that stigma expands the market and expands sort of the kind of products you'd be able to get. When you were doing research for this story, did you find that it was more that there were startups waiting in the wings for an innovation like this or that this will now create a wave of startups? Yeah. So it sounds like from the people I spoke to, it's a little bit of both. Okay. Because even with this new ruling, this isn't going to be a free for all. Like anyone can put a product out there. Like all the products will still have to be FDA approved. Okay. Which is its own pain. (laughs) Right. And so knowing that this regulation was a possibility this year, I spoke to a professor at Johns Hopkins University, Nicholas Reed, and he said that he already knows of a few companies who've gone through the FDA approval process. And we're just waiting for this sort of decision to come down. So he was saying you could get new products as early as like three to five months from now. But he hopes that still this sparks a lot of people who maybe were interested in the space, but just knew that the regulations would just make it impossible to succeed. will now give it a second look. Yeah, it's so, well, one, I love professors as sources and I think we should do it more at TC, but they're always like the spiciest mm-hmm. interviews because they like just don't have as many financial tie-ups as other people. Exactly. <laughs> How did you find this one? Well, interestingly enough, so the OnTech newsletter from the New York Times, they looked into hearing aids. This was over a year ago, which I was surprised that yeah. I remembered this when I originally saw the ruling on Monday because I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, I recently read something about how it's really hard to innovate in this space and then was surprised to find out it was like over a year ago. Yeah. But they had spoken to him there and he has just done so many interesting studies that I was like, I got to get his take on this now too. Like he's done studies that prove like a $300 over the counter device is like the same quality as some of these like more expensive prescription products. So he definitely is like tuned into this space more from the intersection of audiology and public health, which I thought was super fascinating. Yeah, he was definitely a great take on this. I feel like it's so underrated how this is obvious, but getting a whole new flow of innovation, it does more than like it decreases stigma. But I think oftentimes people will be like, okay, we're going to see like anything on the market now. I I guess I'm glad that some bottlenecks have been burst, but there hopefully will be some quality. And I would love to see like design be a focus versus just accessibility too, or not just, Mm -hmm. but being able to think big needs something like this to happen in order for you to think big. Otherwise you just want to do like the MVP and get it through, I'm guessing. Definitely. No, something that was super interesting that came up is so many people who would benefit from hearing loss technology don't necessarily need like a hearing aid you're going to wear 12 hours a day. Yeah. One of the founders I spoke to is saying that this could become a really interesting consumer tech category where he was saying like some of your hearing loss could be like, you and I are having a conversation like this and I can hear you totally fine. But if we were to move this to a restaurant, maybe I would just need a little help hearing you. And he was saying that there could be a whole new category of like consumer tech hearing aids where it'd be like, okay, I know I need to wear them at conferences. I know I need to pop them in if I'm in a meeting, but like for people who wouldn't need to wear them all the time, like those people are not going to go through the lengthy and pricey process that exists right now to get the prescription, to get something where you're going to have to get fitted multiple times back and forth. So it's like, there are a ton of people now who you can design tech for who honestly just like weren't even going to be part of the market before, even though they do suffer from hearing loss. 
Totally. The total addressable market like completely expands. It was kind of the point I wanted to end on, which is, are we going to see investors back a D2C health tech play? And I think a lot of D2C news has been pretty negative, but a lot of digital health news has been positive. And so it does take investors to, I don't know, I would love to see investors back something like this. Like this feels like the impact that I would love venture to see more of, but I'm, I'm pretty much a broken record in that category. Yeah. And there have been some startups that have, because the regulations were murky in some states prior to this ruling, you were able to sell some types of products to certain populations online to begin with. So there definitely are startups that already exist that have received VC backing. We're clearly not shying away from the space when the regulations were a lot more murky. So I definitely could see them sort of piling in now. I mean, let's stick on the murky regulation topic because this week, my deal of the week is Pomelo and it's all about rethinking international money transfer, which I knew was complicated, but I didn't know how complicated it was. So I was really excited to see a company with kind of a different take raise a $20 million seed in this environment, nonetheless, to make it a lot easier and a little bit more based around helping both sides benefit from the money transfer, the sender and the receiver. Mm-hmm. No, this space is super interesting. I wrote a story earlier this year about a money transfer startup, and that was sort of my first foray into the space. And yeah. I just, you just did not realize how complicated it was. Yeah. And this has like kind of been the story of me learning more about fintech is like, oh, I didn't realize it was this complicated. And that definitely is partially privilege, right? That I was able to avoid learning about the intricacies of sending money overseas. But with Pomelo, like what really stood out to me was oftentimes with international money transfer, a sender will have to pay a transfer fee. And so the more money they send, the more expensive it is. And then of course, the timing of that money can be difficult. And because there's like that fee involved, you can only send so much at a time because you probably don't want to get inundated with fees yourself. Of course, if we expand that to like an immigrant, someone who recently moved to a different country, sending money back home, I'm going to add in that layer of like, they may not be wanting to pay extra fees. So Pomelo is trying to basically, instead of monetizing on transfer fees, it's monetizing on interchange fees. So think of like a stable fee, regardless of how much money you send. And the truest innovation is about, they're going to basically, instead of sending cash, you're sending credit. Your family gets to access credit on a 24-7 basis up to a certain amount. While you, if you're a newer person in a country and are building up a credit score, so to speak, you can start building a track record. I like that too for, I don't know, I don't see too much of that these days where it's like, oh, like it's for both sides, not just like easier. It's also like smarter. Mm -hmm. No, and I definitely think that's such an interesting take on it too, sort of the credit aspect of it. It feels almost like seamless if you are in a country with sort of like high credit adoption where you could be able to pay like that. It almost makes more sense because I feel like in those countries, people are, if it's more of a a higher credit adoption, that's what you're going to be using to pay anyway. Totally. I mean, and it's, it's starting in the Philippines. I believe it's planning to expand to India and one other geography. I'm sorry, it's losing the top of my head, but the way that they're planning on doing that Again, I think they set some good boundaries because it still is hard, right? Like they are trying to bet on people who don't have credit scores. And there's a reason it hasn't been successful in the past. I'm not saying that this is like no one thought of this. I think it's just going to be an ambitious play that has good seed funding. But more than even the seed funding, I thought their MasterCard partnership was really smart. We're talking about regulatory hurdles. And I think one would definitely be to get a Pomelo cash register or scanner in each local business. Like that feels hard. MasterCard obviously has the physical footprint around the world. So I'm kind of glad that they like, like knew what they should do and and it shouldn't be to try and like disrupt everything with like Pomelo branding and instead go with a more institutional partner. No. And it seems like Visa and MasterCard definitely will sort of help on that front. But it also, like you said, it's definitely sort of a sign off on quality or sign off on sort of how they think about the ideas being sort of more of the 
higher up expertise in the space. It's interesting too, because the money transfer company I covered earlier yeah. this year is called Aferix. It's based in Nigeria. Okay. And their whole play is that you transfer money by it converting to stable coin and then it transfers. And then when the receiver wants to take it out, it transfers to the local currency. But they're also thinking of working with Visa and Visa already sort of signed on to a future card for them too. So it seems like Visa and MasterCard are definitely big corporate partners in the money transfer space and definitely seem eager to like lean into innovation here, which is definitely a positive sign for the companies trying to tackle this area. Yeah, I love that you added that. Like I had no idea that that existed. And and to give you even more tea, like Visa and MasterCard are both interested in Pomelo per the founder and Pomelo went with MasterCard. So like a little bit of like how many startups can both of those institutions get on their team, I'm sure is playing out. Definitely. No, it's good. That just is like a great sign, I think, for this area. Yeah. Even if like, like you mentioned, it is definitely a harder area with regulations and all of the like. Totally. Well, let's jump into continuing the conversation around spending and jump into our first theme. So you wrote a story that I have been teasing out for like weeks. And thanks for not getting mad at that because I've just been so excited for you to write it. And it's all about how employee benefits startups are going to be impacted by companies and employers, the same ones having layoffs, scaling back on all other costs as well. So what did you write for TechCrunch Plus this week? Yeah, definitely. So this story was pretty interesting to me, and it didn't even spark from the employee benefit startup side. I just came across a LinkedIn post probably in like June at this point that mentioned that the it was an investor who was worried of just about B2B2C companies in general. They were saying like, oh, if that's your business model, especially as companies look to cut costs, that could be problematic or that could stunt growth, not necessarily saying they would be totally wiped out or anything like that. And it got me thinking about the fact of these employee benefit startups, because I feel I either spoke to a bunch of them last year, or I just got like a ton of pitches about it. And I was like, I had never really gotten too many like that prior to 2021. And I know for a fact, a few of the ones I talked to last year had either started that year or pivoted to that model that year. So everything was like very fresh, very new. Yeah. Because everyone was trying to jump on the great resignation. Companies were trying to bolster everything to sort of make it more attractive for employees to stay. Yeah. I mean, I saw something super similar happen with EdTech, which is a lot of EdTech companies. Mm. And I'll give them credit for this because this was still in this height and spotlight of that sector. And a lot of them were like, we know consumer interests are going to change. Consumer habits are going to change long term. So we want to start putting feelers into the enterprise space, like Masterclass created one, OutSchool created one. It felt a little bit like everyone just creating a benefit and kind of packaging up their services. So I do think like the really thoughtful enterprise products versus the not thoughtful products were never going to be treated the same. But it's just mm-hmm. so interesting to me now that like even the ones that had the foresight to go the enterprise route are, of course, now also facing the sticky customer is no longer sticky. Definitely. No, that's I think what is the biggest thing here is that because so many companies decided to do this model last year, it's like, oh, well, corporations will spend anything to sort of keep their employees. And I mean, they were totally right. Yeah, for like six, nine months. But thinking about now as sort of the volatile stock market and just as things are more going on the downturn, people are obviously talking about a mm-hmm. potential recession. I was curious kind of how they would fare. Like, would you keep a random employee benefit you didn't have two years ago now that you need to sort of cut costs? So yeah, I just thought that was like an interesting area to just start diving in. So chatting with someone, an HR researcher, he was saying that in 2008, oh yeah, first thing first thing on the cutting room floor would be employees, like benefits. Because if if you have employees that really don't feel like they have anywhere else to go, you don't necessarily need to do things to keep them there, as bad as that sounds. But he was saying that even if we enter a recession now because of the labor market, 
it would just be so unwise for these companies to cut them now. It's just like a totally different ballgame, a totally different scenario where he was saying that that would actually be like one of the worst ways companies could cut costs now would be to sort of cut these employee benefits. Oh my God. Reason number like 7,021 that I'm not envious of being a founder right now. Cause oh, I know. I honestly wouldn't know. In some ways it's like, is it even in bad taste if I had to conduct two rounds of layoffs but still have like a, a sweet green membership for all my employees? I'm sure it kind of is. And yeah, that seems like such a hard balance to strike and get right. Oh, I'm sure. And especially with some of these employee benefit startups, a lot of them do sell to the big corporations, but yeah. they also sell to other startups. Him and I had like a, we talked about it for just a few minutes. Like if things continue going poorly, I mean, this is going to get cut eventually. It just like, it definitely seems safer for now. I want to kind of walk people through something that some listeners might already know, which is like kind of the arc of how we've thought about benefits in Silicon Valley. Because when I first started, I was like, okay, it's going to be like beer kegs and pool tables. And that felt very like 1.0 where it was like unlimited alcohol and stuff like that. What version are we at right now? Like if you had to say what 2.0 and 3.0 were, like, can you divide that up or is it still like no one can agree (laughs) on where we're at? Definitely. No, I think now it's sort of ways that companies can help their employees that just like you didn't think your company would like get involved in, or at least like that's kind of how I've looked at it. Yeah. Like one of which I know there's been a ton of like fertility funding employee benefits startups that have come about in the last couple of years, which is something that sure, maybe the health insurance you were getting from your company to begin with had something in there about it, but it's generally like IVF and things like that are not really well covered by insurance. So I think when people realized how important that was to employees and the fact that there's some stat that I think it's like, I can check it later, but like a good percentage of employees would leave their job to go to a company that covered these treatments. I mean, especially with Roe v. Wade being overturned. Exactly. So it's like stuff like that. Another interesting one that's come about on the scene lately is like a buy now, pay later model for healthcare that goes through employers. Oh, wow. So that company, that employee benefit would be like, you would get almost like the way you get like a health equity card through a traditional healthcare plan. Yeah. And you would just be able to like put the charge on there and then pay the company back over time if you have like a big unexpected medical procedure. So I just feel like a lot of the newer companies are just like trying to tackle areas that maybe you wouldn't traditionally think that your company would kind of like be involved in. Which is like, it's so important to say that out loud because there's such a difference with people taking back benefits that are like not a big deal versus the benefits that are truly like life changing and impactful. And that's like hopefully where we'll see things go. But I wanted to dig into one more thing in your story, which was this idea of mission driven benefits. And I hadn't seen that phrase pop up before. It's something that I'm guessing a lot of newer startups or late stage companies more than like the big companies are dealing with right now. Definitely. But I could see it leak into the big companies as well. I mean, a big one that sort of came to my mind when I was having that conversation about that specifically is the thought of like mental health services that a lot of companies have sort of added over the last couple of years. Imagine if you had this whole campaign about stopping burnout and sort of helping your employees and then you cut it. Like, what would that tell your employees? Like, that would just be, like, such a terrible idea. I mean, it would leak, and we would write a story about it, for sure. Exactly. (laughs) But, like, stuff like that. I mean, if you're targeting anything in women's health and you have, like, a fertility benefit, like, you really can't cut that. Yeah. Or that's just going to send the absolute wrong message to your employees. Yeah. It's all making me think about a story that Alex Wilhelm and Anaheim wrote in around May, which was about corporate venture. And it kind of conscious of what you're talking about because benefits is one way that corporations spend, but corporations who maybe cut like an impactful benefit, if they still are investing in like disruptive startups at crazy valuations, 
another kind of PR and general, like, how are you running your business fail? Um, so anyways, I was surprised because that story sounds like CVC is still doing really well and still strong. Like it pulled back, but less than you imagine was the headline. And I know you're also focused on CVC a bit. Definitely. No, I was pretty surprised when I got a pitch earlier about Ulta Beauty launching a CVC fund, right. which I thought it was interesting <laughs> to launch like a new corporate venture fund this year. Obviously, of course, totally worth noting that you don't decide today to launch a venture fund. Yes. Plans have been in the works for at least a year and stuff like that. I'm totally obviously conscious of that timeline. I love when venture people are on the show because I think some people are like, why would they do it the day after? And I'm like, no, this was not in reaction to anything. (laughs) Right. Right. But I definitely was surprised because I mean, some, even if you say set 20 million aside as a venture fund, totally as a corporate venture fund, and you could be like, hmm, looking at the market conditions, maybe we had planned to, you know, set another pool of money for this next year. Maybe we'll just drastically slow down and instead do that in three or four years. But it definitely does not seem that way. It seems like corporations are just like really all in on the spending right now, even though CVC funding has gone down this year, it has not dropped more than regular VC funding, crossover funding, any of those categories. And according to some data from PitchBook from the first half of this year, the percentage of deals that included these types of investors actually went up over last year, very slightly. But I mean, very few things have gone up this year. So definitely still worth pointing out. Yeah. It's like, I wonder if I'm just theorizing, but I wonder if corporate venture gives startups more of like the allure or vibe of stability than a VC firm that isn't creating its own revenue. And it kind of can't disappear overnight if it has a corporate venture capital fund, like the company, maybe. I don't know. Also, I think the LP aspect of this is huge because I know there's a lot of venture investors right now who are saying, oh, like we would write X check, we would do X deal, but we don't want to call the capital or LPs told us not to call capital on XYZ and all that stuff. And of course, like, you can't always assume all of that is true, but of course, some of it is. Yeah. And when you get a CVC, you just like you just take that entire side of the equation just off the table. Yeah. You don't have to ask someone else normally. And usually a lot of those CVC arms operate not fully independent from the companies, obviously, but they don't need to go into the company to get approval right. on a startup. So it's like they can just operate knowing what cash they have on hand and sort of they don't need those extra steps that a traditional venture firm would need that could be impacted this year. Part of me thinks we're going to see more debuts. To your point, this was something that was in the works for a long time for most funds, like all funds, unless you're like a rolling fund. And maybe we'll see more debuts than second funds. Because I I do think at some Mm. point, if your learning and development budget has shifted dramatically, and in some ways you're like opening yourself up to potential employee churn, I imagine it has to trickle down in some way to your other operations, to anything experimental. Even though they're on different sides of the table, I feel like anything experimental or ambitious ends up getting scaled back during a downturn. Mm-hmm. Or at least you'd think. <laughs> at the same time, though, with everyone, even the investors who are literally sitting out right now, everyone's like, oh, this is the best time to I invest. Know. It's when valuations come down. And I feel like if you're a corporate VC who's sort of gotten into the groove over the last however many years of this bull market and have had some success, I feel like if you have any sort of means to keep investing in that way, I feel like the company would actually probably be behind you. Yeah. 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 Why would you stop? I want to end with a look at two U.S. geographies. It's something we don't do enough on the show. And as someone who is very loyal to Cincinnati and anywhere in Michigan, it's so exciting to be talking about the Midwest to start. (laughs) Um, We only have a few minutes, though, so I want to jump right away into the story that you wrote, which is LPs are abandoning the U.S. Midwest this year, and it doesn't make sense. So why doesn't it make sense? So this is super interesting because like, the first half of this year saw record fundraising in venture. And then you look at the Midwest and some of the states in the 
Midwest raised zero dollars this year for firm fundraising, which those numbers are just stark to begin with. And yeah, of course, you can argue like, is Kansas always going to raise a venture fund every quarter? No. But like some of the states, it was like, okay, Missouri, St. Louis, like I get pitches about St. Louis quite frequently. So that is actually quite surprising. And what I thought was interesting about it particular was because when I started talking to VCs who invest in the Midwest and who are based there, they were saying that disconnect is really stark to them because all of the coastal VCs who started sort of investing in the region as everything took off last year are kind of doubling down this year. Wow. Because that's where you can find the companies where you don't need to be like, oh, you should have 12 to 18 months of runway. Those companies are like, we always raise for 24 months of runway. And it's sort of like, kind of like pure play founders who are like, oh, I found a problem in the agriculture industry where I'm working. I can't fix it at my current job, but I know how to. Those are the kind of startups you're getting, especially in areas like the Midwest. So they're saying it's interesting that LPs are not backing funds there because LPs are backing funds that are investing their anyway. Anyways, yeah. Oh my God. Well, just to gas you up for a second, I think it's so rare for us or anyone in the tech journalism space to like look at the LP side of where their dollars are going. Like I just don't see it happening that much. And so I was like very happy to see the LP perspective. It just like ends up adding a whole new layer of exactly what you said, where it's like your hypocrisy in a way where it's like, wait a second, they're all involved anyways. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel like it just is a really good way to look at things. And then also really quickly, I want to talk about Atlanta's venture ecosystem. Dominic from the TechCrunch Plus team as well wrote about how the Southeast U.S. is on track for its best year yet and it had its best quarter for funding in Q2 2022. There was declines across other regions 2022, but there was a few rounds in Atlanta that stood out. And so I don't know. I mean, you get into it just now with how even if local VCs aren't raising, others are coming into the market anyways. Is there anything else that we can draw comparison-wise between these two geographies? Yeah, I think valuations is definitely the big one here Mm, because valuations and we're not going to pretend that like valuations didn't spike in these regions last year because that would just be like completely inaccurate but they did not spike as much as they did in the bay area and new york so if you want to come in and invest in a company that's going to take maybe a lower step up than last year you can do so in regions like the southeast and the midwest without it being sort of like a as big of a deal or you won't be doing the big cuts that you're seeing in some of the other startups there either It's such a difference. I used to think, so like Duolingo was like the Pittsburgh startup. And I was like, oh, it's such Mm -hmm. a good thing that they have so much growth. And now I'm like, oh, maybe you don't want to be, Duolingo is a separate example because they're public now. But I imagine like the big unicorns are not as beneficial as you think or aren't everything about geography anymore. But I know that we are much over time. Becca, thank you so much for joining. It was so lovely to to have you. And I know you're going to be back pretty soon. So I'm glad that your inbox is now going to be full of people telling you that they're team tea instead of coffee and you can actually diversify equities, caffeine preferences. (laughs) No, no, I hope so. I once said on a podcast that I thought butternut squash was underrated and I got 15 pitches. Oh my God. Okay. Matcha D2C companies do not email Becca and everyone else. We will chat with you on Monday. Thanks for hanging out with us on this very frantic week. Bye. Bye. 